get, obviously you haven't heard this pub barn. Welcome to Mornings on Main Street, Clarksville. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you are having a wonderful day out there. October is designated as Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's an important month to talk about not only awareness, but early detection. Today, hear from Dr. Lindsay Keith, a breast surgeon with Ascension St. Thomas Rutherford. She shares with us not only the risk factors, but the latest in treatment and other important information. To give you a couple of numbers today, one in eight women will receive the breast cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. Two of three will get that diagnosis after the age of 55. So again, a lot of great information coming from Dr. Keith, and that'll be up for you in a few minutes. After that, I'll have some information on intimacy and communication from licensed therapist Kristen Watson from All About Counseling and Wellness here in Clarksville. She says the two go hand in hand, and it's really good to be on the same page. She'll have that and more coming up for you as well later in the show. And then if you are a fan of hiking and a good brew, we have a great spot for you from our Tennessee Traveler segment with Tom Atkinson. He takes us to Happy Trails Brewery in Sparta, Tennessee. Again, it's a great place, and I'll have all of the ins and outs and what you need to know about the brewery coming up for you today. But first, let's get a check of the wrap with reporter Sherry Reeves. This is the wrap for the Thursday, October 19th edition of Main Street Clarksville. The first of four Whataburger restaurants has opened in Clarksville. The lines have still not let up at the popular eatery off exit 11 on Fire Station Road. The restaurant's 24-7 drive-through service opened first with the dining room set to open in coming weeks. That will accompany Whataburger's grand opening celebration, and we'll keep you posted on that. We have details about some suspected shoplifters in Clarksville. One young lady was arrested in Nashville, but police are still looking for this one, Danielle Pitt, who allegedly sprayed a police officer with beer spray. On October 14th, most people just saw clouds during the partial annular solar eclipse over Clarksville, but one county commissioner who took a great picture of it dabbles in astrophotography for his hobby. Read which commissioner it was in this week's edition. And Frank Sutton superfan and Clarksville historian Billy Frank Morrison stand shoulder to shoulder with the statue of the late Frank Sutton on Franklin Street as October 23rd approaches, marking the late actor's 100th birthday. Sutton was a World War II veteran and starred as the fierce Sergeant Carter on TV's Gomer Pyle TV show. But he also had a career with other acting roles to his credit. Read Main Street Media's talented Ken Beck's feature on the late star and the impact he had on Morrison. And that's the wrap. I'm Sherry Reeves, Main Street, Clarksville. As a busy mom juggling family, errands, and everything life throws at me, I try my best to be environmentally conscious. So of course, I buy flushable wipes thinking I'm doing the right thing. But it turns out flushable wipes aren't actually flushable. I found out the hard way when flushable wipes caused a clog and flooded my house with sewage. 
It ended up costing me thousands of dollars in damage and a big headache with the insurance company. It's safe to say our family will never flush a flushable wipe again and instead put them where they belong, in the trash. It's the biggest racing show of the year, Friday through Sunday, November 3rd through 5th at Nashville Fairground Speedway. Six fast-paced divisions of racing on the quarter mile Friday night. Pole qualifying in three big feature events Saturday night. And the Curb Records Big Machine Vodka Spike Coolers Fall American 400 on Sunday afternoon. Racing starts at 6.30 Friday, 5 o'clock Saturday, and 1 o'clock Sunday. Tickets available at NashvilleFairgroundSpeedway.racing or at the gate on race day. It's the 39th All-American 400 weekend, Friday through Sunday, November 3rd through 5th. Get your tickets now. We offer services for both men and women, breast, body, and face for both. People come to plastic surgery offices because they want to improve something that they feel is a flaw in themselves. About 10 years ago, our men's procedures were probably about 10% of what we did. Nowadays, it's more like 30 or 40%. Eyelid lifts, liposuction, and we even do hair transplants here. We are part of the community, and we want to be able to walk around and see faces in the community that we've made happy. So looking at statistics, one in eight will be diagnosed with breast cancer, two out of three women after the age of 55. We're sitting down with Dr. Lindsay Keith, who has been a breast surgeon now going on her seventh year of residency. First off, thank you so much, Dr. Keith, for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Right off, what are some of the risk factors for women um, as they get older? Okay. The gen in general, the biggest risk factor is being a female, of course. So one in eight women, as you mentioned, are going to deal with breast cancer. So that's why it's very important to know know, you, know your own breast, also know what your other risk factors are, which I'll, which I'll talk about, but also make sure you self-examine, which we'll also talk about. So risk factors, mainly um, most people think of family history. While family history is certainly a risk factor, um, not everybody with breast cancer has a family history of breast cancer. So there's a lot of mis, um, misconception there. Um, but really, estrogen exposure in general, so starting periods at an early age, um, having uh, hormones after uh, an average age of menopause, which is 51, mm -hmm. um, estrogen exposure in general in that aspect, um, never having children or never carrying a child to term is actually a risk factor as well. Um, excessive alcohol use, uh, and of course, again, family history is where we look into it as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then let's talk about self-examination uh -huh. and when that should start and exactly what you are looking for. Yeah. There's no uh, great guidelines for when it should start, but in general, my recommendations are to know your own breast because I have women that are girls really that come to me at 16, 17, um, that have masses and they found them themselves. Now, uh, most of the time, 16 and 17 years, 17 year olds aren't doing regular breast exams, but certainly by the time you're in your early 20s, you should know kind of what's normal for you and what's not. Uh, so lumps, bumps, masses, anything that's new uh, and not going away after about two weeks would be concerning. Uh, pain is actually very rarely a sign that something bad is going on. So one of the most common things I see is breast pain. Well, good. I always say good. You have breast pain because that's rarely a sign that something bad is going on. Really, I can count on one hand how many times pain has been so associated with a cancer diagnosis. So that's not really a sign of cancer, but it certainly gives people reason for concern. They you know, find, call their doctors, go to their doctors. But it's really masses that are sort of fixed or stuck to the surrounding tissue, masses that are sort of mobile or kind of move underneath your fingers or um, are smooth are usually cysts or a benign tumor called a fibroadenoma. They're not usually a cancer diagnosis in those cases. So it's really just knowing your breasts. Uh, on average, I usually recommend people examine them once a month because if you're examining them every day, 
You might not notice changes. Just Mm -hmm. as if you see somebody every day, you're not going to notice weight loss. Uh, as if you see them once a month, you're going to notice some changes over time. Right. So um, once a month in the shower is the best place to do it because, you know, let soapy water be on your skin. It kind of helps things slide a little better. So you can see if they're mobile. You can see if they're fixed to their surrounding tissue, things like that. I, I don't know about others, but my first initial reaction would be a little panic mm-hmm. if that if I felt something. Absolutely. What do you what can you say to women who are doing those self exams or they say they get that diagnosis of mm-hmm. breast cancer? What mm-hmm. can you say to them? For the for the women that does a self woman that does a self exam and finds a lump, don't delay. Um, two weeks is a long enough time for something you know, not concerning to go away. Um, a cyst related to your cycle will usually get smaller or less prominent. Uh, after about that two-week time period or even a month. Um, but if you feel something and you're concerned at all about it, don't ever hesitate to go to your doctor, uh, primary care doctor, urgent care, uh, wherever you can go to sort of have yourself be heard about, hey, I found this thing. What do I need to do next? And then the next thing that you should do, depending on your age, is some sort of imaging. If you're less than 30, that imaging is usually going to start with an ultrasound. If you're over 30, that's usually going to start with a bilateral uh, diagnostic mammogram plus an ultrasound on the side that you're feeling something. So bilateral lateral, both sides, diagnostic, they're looking for something. Uh, And then again, the mammogram is usually combined with an ultrasound. And that's the best way to sort of first look and see if there's anything bad. And a lot of times what happens is women do that and then they find, oh, well, you've got a cyst, you're going to be fine. And then you can have some, you know, pause for concern or um, less reason for concern. And then Sometimes you'll still get established with a breast surgeon at that point because if it's symptomatic, meaning it's painful or it's growing, something like that, we can still do some things for that. But after you get a diagnosis, again, of course, now it's it's game time, as I call it. Now we have a diagnosis. Now it's time to go through all of the steps to figure out the things that we need to do next. Okay. What, where is treatment? How has that advanced throughout the years? Where are we now? Well, let's look historically on that because, you know, going through fellowship, you sort of learn about the history of breast cancer. And really prior to the 1970s, it was pretty barbaric, uh, to be honest. Um, so we thought that you had to have what's called Halstead's radical ra- radical mastectomy, which means taking uh, all of the breast tissue, all of what we call level one, two, and three lymph nodes. It's a lot of lymph nodes. Uh, removing the entire pectoralis major and minor muscles. And then essentially you have skin on top of the ribs. And it was very morbid. Um, but what they learned over time uh, for many, many years is that, that women would still die from metastatic breast cancer or they would still die from breast cancer, even the, despite having to have this major radical surgery. So then began a, a series of, of trials um, uh, put forth by the NAPVC that um, had basically studied you know, the radical mastectomy compared to what we call a modified radical mastectomy, which is where the breast and the levels one and two lymph nodes go, but the muscles stay in place. And over time, essentially, as all of these, um, I'm talking about surgical case studies, as all these surgical studies kind of came about, we found that you could do less and less surgery and still get by with um, similar survival rates. Okay. So surgically, we're doing less, um, which is a good thing. Um, in terms of how much tissue we have to take, how many lymph nodes we have to take. And now what we're seeing is sort of a de-escalation of lymph node surgery, or meaning not doing as much surgery in the lymph nodes because the morbidity associated with lymphedema for the, for the rest of that patient's life is pretty extreme. 
And it doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to, to many that have the full lymph node section plus some other procedures that go along with it. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of surgery, we're seeing less and less of it. Now we're actually starting to see some cryotherapy or freezing a tumor that's um, sort of new and up and coming. But when it comes to survival, truly what has made a difference is systemic treatment. And by that, I mean um, the medical oncologist that's usually part of the team when treating you. Uh, talking about anti-hormonal therapies that have improved over time, uh, systemic chemotherapies and immunotherapies or targeted therapies that have improved over time, and even some targeted oral medications or oral medications that target specific receptors have um, have been um, come about over time. And those are truly where survival benefits have, have uh, made strides there over the years. Good. So we've had a significant um, improvement in breast cancer care over the past 50 years. And when you think about time, mm -hmm. Um, the amount uh, or the, the level of improvement that we've made in just that short period of time is, is dramatic. And with that also, sorry, I have a lot to say about no, this No, no, please. With that also is um, mammograms, uh, early detection. Um, and that didn't really start in the breast cancer world until around the 90s. Um, that's really when mammograms, the, the, incident, or the, the use of mammograms started to improve significantly in the 90s. Uh, a lot, if you were to look at a survival curve from, from breast cancer altogether, the survival curve and use of mammograms is side by side. So it's early detection, really. Any cancer that you find early is typically curable. So again, making sure that you're having your regular doctor visits, making Absolutely. sure that you're conducting those monthly mm -hmm. um, self-breast exams, you mm -hmm. know, while you're in the shower or whatnot mm -hmm. at any time. Is there anything that we can do with our lifestyles that can maybe decrease our chances? The only thing that has really been shown to improve survival, not only at diagnosis um, or even prevent breast cancer, is keeping your BMI normal. Um, because when you think about hormones, all hormones are stored in body fat. And so uh, it's, it's very... Um, uh, counterintuitive to postmenopausal women um, when they hit, go through menopause and they don't have any estrogen around anymore, um, their, their tumors are most often um, hormone receptor positive. Uh, so they're fed by hormones. And so that confuses people because like, I don't have any hormones around. Yes, you do. It's just in your body fat. Okay. And so you can't really control that except for obviously keeping your BMI normal and trying to decrease that as much as possible. So that's really the only thing that has been shown over time to one, prevent it, two, um, if you have breast cancer, improve your survival and decrease the risk of having it come back again. And that was going to be my next question. You know, if a woman has breast cancer or a man, um, do we need to be checking other areas or, you know, talking with our doctor to make sure we don't have cancer anywhere else? Yeah, sure. There are some um, cancers that go together. Okay. Uh, when we think about gene mutations, there are some clusters of cancers that go with specific gene mutations. Mm -hmm. In the breast cancer world, the two, uh, two of the highest risk gene mutations are BRCA1 and 2. They're BRCA1 and 2. Those are what everybody kind of knows from the um, Angelina Jolie. I believe she was BRCA2 positive. But ultimately, um, uh, you know, prophylactic mastectomies, things like that. But there are actually several gene mutations, at least eight to 10 relatively high risk um, genes that increase your risk for breast cancer. And for those patients, uh, certainly they would be candidates for what we call high risk breast cancer screening. Mm -hmm. um, there are some calculations that we use also to determine outside of gene mutations, not having a gene mutation if you are at a higher than average risk for breast cancer over your lifetime. And those folks also qualify for high risk breast cancer screening. Okay. How common is it for a man to see breast cancer? 1% of all breast cancer statistically are in men. Okay. When a man comes with a mass or a lump or a bump, most often it's not something cancer related. Mm -hmm. But when it is, 
Um, obviously men, men still get a mammogram and they still get a mammogram on both sides. I call it a manogram so that, you know, but they still get to wear the same cape and typically yeah. pink and, you know, uh, bright colors, but ultimately they get the same workup as a woman, uh, and they get the same treatment in general as a woman. So, um, in general, they get a mammogram to diagnose it. They get a mammogram plus ultrasound to diagnose it and have a biopsy. Most of the time they are estrogen receptor positive in men. Uh, they usually present at slightly higher stages, meaning a little bit further advanced because most of the time men wait. You know, they're like, this can't be breast cancer. Right. Uh, so they wait until uh, it's usually a little bit larger before either their spouse or um, or they get concerned enough to go get it checked out. But statistically, again, 1% of all of them, um, are, all, all breast cancers are in men. But the first one of the first things that we do, do is look at genetics. Okay. And so that's a it's an automatic indication for genetic testing because it technically shouldn't happen. Right. And a male. Okay. A couple so. more questions for you. Yeah. Now that there is a position called a, the navigator, you mm-hmm. know, for someone to be able to work those patients and families, what are your thoughts? How is that, how helpful has that been for those who go through the diagnosis and treatment? Yeah. So, um, this is a journey, uh, and not a sprint. And, um, ultimately there's a lot of moving parts, uh, when it comes to both, um, the diagnosis, the treatment, and then even surveillance, uh, long-term afterwards. So a navigator really helps us um, kind of keep those things on track. Uh, not everybody gets everything when it comes to treating breast cancer. And so it helps patients to kind of understand what what their path, what their journey is going to be, and then help navigate them through those uh, next phases as well. So it's, it's great. Uh, I'd say so. And again, we'll be speaking with um, a, a nurse who plays that role as breast cancer navigator and working with families. So we'll get to hear more about that coming up just a little bit later. Dr. Keith, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to share, maybe beneficial for people to hear? Sure. Um, screening is important. Um, screening is done in a patient that doesn't have any symptoms, uh, meaning one, uh, on average, I don't think we've gone over this, but average risk uh, is, uh, again, 12% or one in eight. And mammograms really should start at 40 years old uh, and once a year. There are some guidelines out there that finally just reversed instead of saying every other year uh, and starting at 50. Now it's 40 years old and once a year. So that is the guidelines. And that's absolutely what you should follow. So if we would like to connect with you, if someone would like more information or would like to connect in some way, how do they do that? The easiest way would be to go to lindsaykeith.com. That's Mm -hmm. L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-K-E-I-T-H.com. You'll see my face there. uh, And I'll have a phone number there. And that phone number is uh, 615-900-2621. Thank you for that. We really do appreciate it. And all the information is so helpful. Again, really do take note and start those, um, you know, those breast exams, you know, in a timely fashion and just make sure that you're getting your annual checkups for sure. Thank you, Dr. T. Thank you. Stick with us here on Mornings on Main Street. We have more coming up right after this. At Old Hickory Credit Union, we're member-owned, not-for-profit, and eager to serve our Robertson County community. Since 1934, we have strived to provide our members with a safe, reliable place to take care of all their financial needs. From checking accounts to loans to mortgages, we're here to help. Credit unions have to constantly adapt to meet the needs of an ever-changing market. However, one constant will always remain, and that is the service we provide to our members. Stop by our Greenbrier branch today. Smiles. These are the healthy smiles of real Delta Dental members. Folks with access to the nation's largest network of dentists and low deductible plans with 100% preventive care coverage, all backed by over 65 years of expertise. Go online or give us a call to learn about affordable individual plans that meet your needs. 
1-855-844-0445. As a busy mom juggling family, errands, and everything life throws at me, I try my best to be environmentally conscious. So, of course, I buy flushable wipes thinking I'm doing the right thing. But it turns out flushable wipes aren't actually flushable. I found out the hard way. When flushable wipes caused a clog and flooded my house with sewage, it ended up costing me thousands of dollars in damage and a big headache with the insurance company. It's safe to say our family will never flush a flushable wipe again and instead put them where they belong, in the trash. Welcome back to Mornings on Main Street. I have the pleasure of sitting back down with licensed therapist Kristen Watson. She's the owner of All About Counseling and Wellness Center in Clarksville. First off, Kristen, thanks again for your time. Thank you for being here. So we're hitting on a topic today, uh, communication and intimacy, how they're related, why they're so important, and maybe some um, things that you can do at home maybe to better your communication to increase maybe intimacy if that's what you'd like. But again, I'm not the expert on that one. So first off, Kristen, how I, how related, um, how closely related is intimacy with communication? I would say that intimacy and communication are very closely related. In order for me to feel safe with you to the point of being vulnerable and open and sharing a connection, whether it is an emotional intimacy or a physical intimacy, right? Um, have to be able to communicate to you and also feel like you're communicating with me, um, sharing our feelings, um, sharing our likes and our dislikes, what we need from one another. Um, I have a lot of young couples that are coming in and even older couples that are coming in and they're talking about intimacy issues that they're having in their relationships, whether they're just dating, they're about to get married or they've been married for a long time. One of the first questions I ask them is, well, how are we communicating? And the answer I get back is, well, we're not. And so that's always our first place to start is with our communication with each other. How do you start that? How do you take the step to be a better communicator? Well, we at first identify how do we communicate okay. with each other because people communicate in different ways. And so I talk about sometimes the messages that we're trying to put out, we assume everybody is perceiving it the way that we are speaking it or delivering it. And that's not always the case. And so I tell them, if this is a need that I have from you, like I need this from you, I have ownership and responsibility to ensure that I am communicating that to you in a way that you understand specifically what it is that I'm asking of you. Okay. Right? So if I'm not taking the time to explain to you what I need from you, I can't be upset with you if you're not meeting that need. Because you don't know. Right. I, so I'm holding you to an expectation you don't know you're being held to. And then I'm being upset because I'm saying you're not hearing me. But you did hear me. You just weren't perceiving the message that I thought I was delivering to you. Interesting. Now, is, is, is it possible to have a good um, sex life, more or less, and not be great communicators or vice versa? Um, I think when we meet people for the first time, and if that's the route that we're going at first, it's we can burn really hot and heavy and we can have a great sex life, mm -hmm. but that's our sex, that's not our intimacy. Okay. I get what you're saying. Okay. Okay. What are some questions that we can put on the table for couples to ask to uh, maybe communicate more, to learn a little more about each other? 
So one of the first assignments that I do with couples when they come in and they talk to me about it is I ask them, what are your needs, right? What, what do you need? What do you need from your partner? How do you know when your partner is meeting your needs? What does that look like? And what does it look like when your partner doesn't meet your needs? And how have you communicated that with your partner? Um, and that's always step one, and that takes a couple of sessions for some for some couples because they've never been asked those questions or they've never stopped to think about what exactly do I need? What am I asking for? And so then I use that as if you are unsure of what you need from somebody, mm-hmm. how can somebody else know how to meet that need? Uh, I wish we had all the time in the world because, again, uh, topics we could go on on this for a pretty long time. So I guess my final question for you in a relationship, whether it's in the beginning or in the end, um, how can we be better partners for each other? Check in with each other. Talk. Ask the questions. Ask clarifying questions. If I hear my partner or think my partner is asking me for something that they need from me, instead of assuming I know, taking the two seconds to stop and check in and ask. Stop and check in and ask. I love that. Kristen Watson, thank you so very much. Licensed therapist and owner of All About Counseling and Wellness Center here in Clarksville. Stick with us on Mornings on Main Street. We have more coming up for you after this commercial break. He shoots and he scores! Here at Rock and Roll Sushi, we're proud to be the original American-style sushi restaurant founded on great food and rock and roll music, boasting concepts and flavors that are big, bold, and loud. We're the only place to experience the rock you love and the rolls you love with the ones you love. Come see for yourself why we're the best sushi experience in town. Find us at 108 Morris Road in Clarksville or visit our website at rockandrollsushi.com. As a busy mom juggling family, errands, and everything life throws at me, I try my best to be environmentally conscious. So of course, I buy flushable wipes thinking I'm doing the right thing. But it turns out flushable wipes aren't actually flushable. I found out the hard way. When flushable wipes caused a clog and flooded my house with sewage, it ended up costing me thousands of dollars in damage and a big headache with the insurance company. It's safe to say our family will never flush a flushable wipe again and instead put them where they belong, in the trash. Welcome back to Mornings on Main Street. We are getting ready to highlight a brewery that is very family friendly. It is in Sparta, Tennessee. To tell us more about it and what you can experience there, we have our Tennessee traveler, Tom Atkinson, to share with us all the information that we need for Happy Trails Brewing Co. there in Sparta. Hey, Tom, thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be here. It's it's (laughs) fun to be with you and always fun to talk about a brewery. Um, Heck yes. I was reading some of your article. Again, they have a Hef, they have a Brown Ale. Um, I'm guessing they probably have an IPA on tap. Tell me they have an IPA on tap. I'm absolutely sure they do. (laughs) How Uh, was your experience? The the last time I was there, I recall they had about 15 taps. Okay. 10 of them were from the brewery itself. 
and then they they have others from the region and uh, others from a little bit farther away too so it's a it's a good beer destination what is their story how did they get going there in sparta we were chatting a little bit before we started that it used to be a dry area back in the day oh yeah i mean well gosh almost all of tennessee was uh, good point <laughs> at, 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 at least legally dry <laughs> 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 but uh, in indeed, times have changed. Uh, nice woman named Jessica Upchurch and her husband Trey um, got interested in brewing. They were home brewers, and um, Jessica decided to get into it seriously. Took a, a special course through Auburn University, and um, became quite the brewer. And they they had to to turn themselves into knots, twist themselves in knots to some regard, when they started talking the idea of having a, a, an in-town brewery in Sparta, mm -hmm. um, they went to the city, as I recall her saying, and the city said, what kind of license do we give for that? <laughs> we, we've never done that before. <laughs> So, so they were breaking new ground in the, in the business world of White County. They are definitely paving the way. You mentioned it's family friendly. Yes, it is a very casual place. Huh. Um, uh, trivia nights and karaoke and, and other stuff. And out back, uh, there's a porch to sit on and a, um, a fire pit and cornhole boards and um, places for the kids to mill around. It's it's a very comfortable place. And the, the Happy Trails part of the name comes from the fact that that part of the state is a big hiking area. Okay. So consequently, that's their theme. And, you know, it, it's the hiker crowd that comes in and, and cools off um, or, or celebrates an accomplishment. It's it's just a it's a nice, pleasant place in a small Tennessee town. Oh, Tom, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Keep, keep traveling out there.